to do with this very thing. The experience of God's people in going through great difficulty and trouble. The response of a soul that is burdened by great troubles. You're in the 25th Psalm, and what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read it, and then we'll draw a few very brief and simple observations from it about the believer's response to trouble. Let's read this psalm together. Uh, Psalm 25, beginning of verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. My God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. For I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many. And they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God out of all their troubles. Now, turning back just two psalms in your Bible will take you to Psalm 23, which is one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. It's much loved for the quiet confidence and the serenity that characterize almost every verse of that psalm. And after that, you get to Psalm 24, which is a great hymn of praise at the entrance of the King of glory into the gates of his city. Joyful expectation and victory. And so after coming through those two psalms, it might seem like nothing can shake our confidence and our joy. The faithful person of God enjoys quiet rest as he happily waits for the coming of the king. But then you reach Psalm 25. Instead of the Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need, the psalmist says I'm alone and I'm in great need. In Psalm 24, we read, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and the king of glory will come in. And here we find the psalmist saying to you, Lord, I lift up my soul, the broken pieces of a battered and troubled soul. And the change might seem very jarring, but this is often the way for God's people. The assurances that we find in Psalm 23 are always true. But Psalm 23 itself also alludes to realities that are easy for us to sort of gloss over. There are green pastures and quiet waters for God's sheep, but there are also valleys, dark as death, 
And there are places that we seem squeezed and walled in by very terrifying obstacles. Psalm 23 talks about enemies as well. In that psalm, the Lord feeds us in quiet while wolves and lions look on helplessly from a safe distance. But there are times when those enemies become much more threatening. Psalm 44 says we're like sheep given over to the slaughter. And this tension is a reality that Jesus himself warned us about. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. And the trouble that he speaks of there is not what we would think of as our day-to-day problems like flat tires or long lines at the checkout. He's talking about very painful circumstances and pressures. Some translations say, In this world you will have tribulation, much trouble. And it would be nice if he had followed up that warning by saying, but I'm just going to take you all out of here immediately. But he didn't say that. In fact, in the very next chapter, when Jesus prayed for his disciples, he said, I do not pray that they would be taken out of this world. So we are embedded in a world that's filled with trouble. We do stand to inherit very incredible blessings, but many times those blessings seem threatened by trouble and cares. And so this psalm becomes a model for all of us as we go through the experience that Christ assured us was coming. We who are living in this world need to know how to respond to the troubles and the cares that come our way. That's really what we find at the end of this psalm. David's focus in writing this is not just on himself, but is ultimately oriented at all of his people as they endure troubles. And that surely includes not just the ethnic nation of Israel, but anyone who's grafted into these covenants of promise that he talks about. David teaches us in this psalm how to groan for the redemption of God's people out of this world. And this prayer helps us as we go through those times. Much of this prayer is directed at others to instruct them in various points of theology that help them to ground them and stabilize them as they go through trouble. So what we're going to do first is look at David's troubles, and then we're going to look at his requests, and then we want to look at the truths that stabilize him in this time of trouble? What are the thoughts that most occupy his mind during this time? And as we do this, hopefully we will gain some insight uh, by the Lord's grace into our own responses as we go through various trials. First, the troubles of the faithful. What are David's troubles? Clearly, David here is enduring an incredible amount of stress, and he doesn't really go into specifics, so we can't be dogmatic on exactly what his situation is. But it's clear that just about anything that you could, um, any kind of weight that we might carry is really all coming crashing down on David at this time. The primary focus here is on his enemies. In the first few verses, he alludes to people that are treacherous without cause. Apparently, there are people who have betrayed David's trust, people that he might have relied on for help, but who failed him when he needed them the most. There are many people that would fit that description in David's life, his own son, Absalom, being a foremost example. At the end of the psalm, David writes that his enemies hate him with great cruelty. People are putting time and energy into making him suffer. They want to see him thrown down, deposed, even killed. Someone like Saul would certainly fit that description. And the threat of violent enemies carries right through history, the history of God's kingdom to the life of even the Messiah himself. Christ knew the threat of conspiracy. From the early days of his ministry, very powerful men plotted 
to twist his words, to falsely accuse him, to get him arrested, and ultimately to kill him. Those in his closest circle of friends denied him, sold him to the cruelest death. And if we're in Christ, we can expect the same kind of treatment. Jesus said, if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but we are not of the world. Now, we might not be personally facing death threats from anyone, but we are also up against a great spiritual conspiracy. Psalm 2 says that all the kings of the earth have set themselves against the Lord. They refuse to be ruled by him. Because we have decided to follow Christ and we're seeking to further his kingdom, the world is against us as well. It must be. The world is ultimately the domain of our greatest enemy, the devil, and he's exercising power in this world to stop the advances of God's kingdom. He does it through our culture, through religion, through entertainment, through kings and princes and prime ministers and presidents. And we may not face physical assault like some believers do, but there is a very focused conspiracy by the power of this world to use great pressure through culture, social pressure, persecution to bring us down and to render us ineffective for Christ. Our great enemy seeks to devour all of us. As Martin Luther's hymn says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. We have enemies. And in verse 17, David also talks about the troubles of his heart. He says, the troubles of my heart have been enlarged. And troubles can refer to external circumstances or to the inner feelings of disquiet and fear and anxiety and stress. And that's probably what's in view here. What are some of these specific inner problems? Well, he talks about being desolate or afflicted. He's completely alone and crushed by needs. He talks about distress and pain pressure and stress. That pain that he talks about is like the ache of your spirit when you have to labor through something hard and adverse and it just hurts to get through the day. It's like a pebble in your shoe that just chafes you whenever you take a step. And so this is a comprehensive kind of trial that David is going through and we can probably identify with at least one of those problems if not some combination of them. David looks back at his youth in this psalm, so he's potentially an older man at this point. And as he's progressed through life, his troubles haven't diminished. They've enlarged, grown deeper and darker. Many, he wrote elsewhere, are the afflictions of the righteous. So David is now like a sheep who, instead of being in green pastures, is led through a very dark valley and seems to be alone there. And so he looks, calls for his shepherd. And what we're interested in most, I think, is his reaction. What is his response? What are his requests during this time? Well, his requests are both forward-looking and they're focused on the present moment. Ultimately, his request is for deliverance. But he also has requests for his progress in the midst of these difficulties in the meantime. I think the central request is summarized for us at the beginning and the end of the psalm both in verse 3 and in, or in verse 2 and in verse 20, he prays, let me not be ashamed. And there's a couple of ways that that request works out in David's experience. 
First, I think it does imply future deliverance. We tend to think of shame often as involving some wrongdoing, but I think the shame here is mainly the terrible disappointment that would come if his enemies actually won and had victory over him. David explains what he means. Let me not be ashamed. Let my enemies not triumph over me. David's troubles and his enemies are so great that they seem to pose a threat to all that God had promised him. And that's a horrifying thought for David, who's based his whole life on following God. It's an unthinkable thing that God would simply abandon his king to be swallowed up and destroyed without redeeming him out of that trouble. And so for David, that simply means deliverance from these circumstances. He needs to be saved from his troubles. He longs for the Lord to come to his aid and to bring him out of his trouble. He asks that in verse 17, bring me out of my distresses. And when we go through times of pressure, it is acceptable for us to plead for the Lord's deliverance, to ask him to see our situation, and then to act by providentially easing our pain and our problems. David asks that God would not leave him in this valley to die, but would bring him out once again to those green pastures. But this also has a focus on David's present endurance, not just his future deliverance, but his present endurance. David uses a lot of space in this psalm to talk about the Lord's direction in his life. David is afraid of being ashamed, and the greatest fear that he has in this time of testing is that the trial would actually cause him to leave the path of righteousness and bring the very shame that he hopes to be delivered from. He has enemies without and an enemy within. There's ignorance, there's stubbornness in David's own heart. David can't fathom the idea that God would fail him, but he's well aware of the possibility that through his own ignorance, through his weakness, he might fail God. There's a part of David that would look around at his situation and say, it's no longer worth it to follow the Lord. I could just make a step in this direction to ease my pain, but that's a step away from the ways of the Lord. And apparently David is especially afraid of this because he knows well the shame of sin. David has a deep awareness of his own fallenness. And this is a major theme of this psalm, the forgiveness of David's sins. And I really don't know if there's a specific sin that David is looking at as the cause of these troubles. It's not stated explicitly, though it may be implied. Perhaps, though, he's just thinking about the myriads of ways he's failed in the past. Either way, forgiveness becomes a major focus of his prayer. He acknowledges that his sin is great. He's done evil in ways that he doesn't necessarily go into here, and he asks for pardon. He asks for God to forget the sins of his past in verses 6 and 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth. During his test, David wants to know the joy and the blessing of having his sins forgiven and having a clear conscience before the Lord. And trials and troubles are often used by God to plow through our hearts and to expose our sin to us. Through these times, he teaches us where we've gone wrong. And it's good to turn over your heart before the Lord as you endure trouble, to clear the air in any way that the Lord brings to mind to seek the forgiveness of God. The whole life of the Christian is one of turning away from sin. The sacrifice of Christ is ever fresh and always able to cleanse us. 
David is not afraid to pour his heart out in repentance to the Lord. But more than just forgiveness for past sins, David pleads for guidance so that he will avoid sin now. He feels squeezed to the point of despair. He's a sheep that's been left in total darkness, and so he asks for God to step in and show him the way to go. And this is really one of the most beautiful elements of the psalm. David asks for God himself to instruct him in the ways of righteousness. He needs to be taught. He's confused by the situation, unsure of the next move. He needs a roadmap to get through this. He needs the Lord to overcome his natural ignorance, his inclination to wander, to show him how to keep in step. He uses several different words related to God's teaching to make his point. He talks about God showing him his ways, giving him certainty about knowing it experientially. He wants God to reveal his will, to show him his covenant, to make him understand the promises that are his and how those apply to his situation. He asks that God would keep his soul, and that is a word related to shepherds watching over sheep. David asks that God himself would personally instruct him in the ways of righteousness, that God would be his tutor. One of the most beautiful promises of this psalm, I think, is found in verse 14. The secret of the Lord, that's the friendly, intimate counsel of God, is with those that fear him. Believers enjoy the friendship of God, and he makes known to them all the wonders of his ways. So those are the requests of a troubled heart. But I think we would miss the primary point if we neglected to look at the basis for these requests. The prayers themselves are instructive, but the theology behind those prayers is even more so. There are truths that are stabilizing David's heart, that bring the prayers out of him. And these are the truths that we need to believe in order to pray these things with the conviction that David expresses. So what are these truths that stabilize us and draw these prayers from our hearts when we go through trouble? What do we need to remember and keep in mind? We're just going to look at a couple of them this evening. The first is that God's love is faithful. And that's seen in verse 6. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. David is able to pray for forgiveness and for guidance because of the everlasting love of God. David talks about the sins of his youth, wrongs that he committed long ago but he can look way farther back than that into the depths of eternity to find God's loyal love, which is more ancient and more durable than anything that may seem to challenge it. And this isn't just warm affection. This is covenant love, a decision by God to bind himself to David in mercy and grace. David says in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He asks for pardon based on the very covenant name of God. When the Lord first revealed his name to the children of Israel, he expressed it this way, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The very name of God, the sum total of his glory, the name by which he swears to his own people that he will be their God, is first and foremost a name of mercy. That's who he is. Forgiveness to the sinner is how he identifies himself for all time. And when plagued by the pain of a guilty conscience, David anchors his confidence in that covenant love, the covenant name of God. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? Is there any trouble that's so great that it severs the tie of God's covenant loyalty to his own people? His determination to forgive all their sins, to see them through to their glorious end. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I run to Christ when plagued by shame and find my one defense. I bore God's wrath. He pleads my case. My advocate and friend. Are you troubled by guilt and sin today? Is the enemy bringing accusations against you, recalling to your mind sins long ago? Do you worry that God has abandoned you to your troubles out of anger or hostility? Set your heart on the ancient and loyal and reliable love of God in Christ. Pray confidently that he would think on you according to mercy. That's his very name. He will forget your sins because he can never forget his son. Secondly and lastly, seems very simple, but the next stabilizing truth is that God is good. David thinks on the goodness of God in the midst of his trial. In verses 7-8, he says, According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. And then he affirms, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. David is confident that God will forgive and instruct him because he's confident that God is good. And he takes time to remind himself of that very simple truth. When we are in situations of great adversity, it is stabilizing to think on the goodness of God, to repeat to ourselves, good and upright is the Lord. And we're told here that God's goodness is a very overflowing kind of goodness. He moves to make wrong things right. God is by nature good and upright and always does what is right, but that doesn't lead him to shun sinners or those who are morally ignorant in fact, his goodness leads him to do the opposite. Because God is good and upright, he instructs sinners in how to live righteously. This is a goodness that is manifest in our lives by his working goodness in us. It is the good pleasure of God to see us sanctified and taught his ways. And when we pray for God to teach us in the midst of some perplexing situation, we're not asking him to do something he doesn't want to do. We don't need to convince him to help us when life takes a confusing turn. God's nature, his glory, is to teach helpless sinners like us in the way that we should go. God's eager for you to believe that about him. 
and he delights in showing you how to live according to his word. In Psalm 32, just a couple of psalms over, as David talks about the joy of being forgiven, the Lord says this in verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go, and I will guide you with my eye. He says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And maybe as we're going through times of great distress and trouble, when we go through those dark valleys, we do need to remind ourselves of those truths that we heard about back in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So whatever burdens and troubles and difficulties you might be going through today, know that your experience is not unique Every believer goes through these times of trial and test. It's inevitable. The Lord promised it to us. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But what are your responses in those times? What do you think about? What do you remind yourself of? Well, we need to take the example of David when he went through great trouble. Remind ourselves of the loyal love of God on our behalf, his goodness in instructing us in the way that we should go. We can pray for forgiveness when we're plagued by the pangs of conscience or when we're simply feeling the pressure of a confusing situation and we don't know where to turn. We can ask him to lead us, to guide us, and direct us, and he will be faithful to do that. And he one day will redeem us from all of our troubles. And we can groan together in this scriptural way in the meantime as we follow the Lord faithfully. Let's pray. Our great Father, we are thankful that your word gives us instruction and guidance and that through your spirit you enlighten us to its truths and you apply it to our hearts. But there may be many here who are going through trials and difficulties and I pray that you would instruct them as you have promised to do in the way that they should go. I pray that you would uphold us by your grace, that you would use our difficulties as opportunities to display your glory that when we feel weakest and lowest, Lord, you would appear strongest and highest. I pray that you would ground our confidence in your love and in your goodness so that we are able to pray with conviction, even in the midst of difficulty, that you are good and upright. And that based on that conviction, we would pray and seek your face in ways that are pleasing to you. And Lord, I ask that you would speed the day when you would redeem us from all of our troubles. And in the meantime, Lord, make us faithful. Give us patience to run the race that is set before us so that we might hear well done when we one day see you. And we thank you so much for your love, for the work that you want to do in each of us, and I pray your blessing on this week especially. In Jesus' name, amen.